Welcome to Craft Advice, a podcast to help investors tackle the more complex area of their personal and business finances. Join Jack and Sean as we discuss everything from investing to retirement and everything in between. That's some beer. Blood alcohol. Got a little head start. You've already crafted your own advice, right? That's right. But... Yeah. Anyways. It's called being an overachiever, well, Jack. View. What was that? It said it's called being an overachiever, Jack. Oh, is it? Some people Consume just like all the... the beverages before we record. And exactly. and Jack and I are catching up by using liquor instead of beer. That's the There answer. you go. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. I don't want to just like, wear fifteen pieces of flair. When... <laughs> are you at chilies right now? Is that where you're at? <laughs> I love chilies. Two for one. You know, I Probably. hope the sound of the the rain in the background comes it's into romantic. the podcast. It's it's soothing. You know, the it listeners are gonna really cute. like it. About to fall asleep in this truck. Anyways, they can always put right. it on so their kids can fall asleep. There you go. I'm going to have Logan go to sleep listening to this later with <laughs> soothing sounds of John's sober tears hitting the roof of his car. <laughs> Anyways, all right. Let's get back into it. Welcome back, everybody, to Craft Advice. We have Rich Brooks back. Talk me out of a Quiznos franchise or maybe a played against sports or a Taco Bell or KFC. What, what, what was that Froyo uh, franchise? The frog one? Sweet frog? Um, Sweet frog. Sounds right. There was, there was the Yobi. There were a million Yobi yeah. franchises for like That's the best bad example. I don't know if Chick-fil-A is franchised or if you're basically just working for the company and they're licensing. I know a lot about their franchise model. I think they win, but anyways. So we're going to talk about everything franchises today. This is an area I don't really know too much about, so... Hence why we got to switch to liquor, but I'm gonna st- I'm gonna start with Rich because obviously Sean, you don't have anything to drink, and his, his choice today, yeah, Sean's <laughs> blood alcohol level showed up with him, so we're good there. <laughs> so I I am drinking uh, Akintoshan single malt American oak, and um, it is it is delicious. I have uh, I've told both of you off air, but. For those that are looking for a way to try new things, there's a drive-through liquor store by my house, and I literally just drive through and ask them for a single malt for between forty and sixty bucks. They bring me two. I pick the one I haven't had, and this was one of those. And it has been pleasantly surprising. You can drink it no ice, just neat, and it is silky smooth, delicious. So there you go. And none of the none of the bubble gut from a beer. So it's just nice, smooth. You get that. If it was a Kentucky, I'd say the Kentucky hug, as they call it. But so, hopefully, they hear this and are willing to like send me a case or something for promoting. Yeah, that'd be cool. I'll just send back. it to them, and we'll see what happens. <laughs> Can't hurt. Can't hurt. We could. Can you get sponsorships after an episode's gone out? I don't know. We'll figure it out. Mm-hmm. I'm drinking uh, Elijah Craig Toasted Barrel. Just sticking with my bourbon collection now that I've been collecting but not drinking. So now I need to put a dent in it. So. John, uh, stick your tongue out the window, get some rain. Cheers, <laughs> cheers everybody. Cheers. I was All drinking right, some uh, Southern Swells Tap It In. A little nod to it's the very players. Very appropriate. Are you in their parking lot right now? Uh, no, I'm not. I'm I'm in the I'm at the Bricks. You know, if you just drive to Rich's liquor store, oh. by the time you get there, we can have something, and then we're good to go. There we go. Uh, All right, Sean, kick us off. What are we giving? Kick us off. Yeah, no, um, I think it would be a good 
just segue piece, uh, Rich, maybe reintroduce uh, your firm again, and then also uh, just give everybody a quick intro to like what a franchise is and how does one generally get started? Maybe kind of, and also elaborate on obviously the complexities, the costs, what makes a franchise a valuable thing for the person buying it? And then also why would somebody want to you know, sell that piece of their business away? Yeah, of course. So uh, yeah, Rich Brooks, St. Augustine Law Group, staugustinelawgroup.com. Um, I have been a business owner and now a business attorney, predominantly focusing on transactional work. Am I a franchise expert? The overwhelming answer is no. Um, but in the operation of my practice, I do see a fair amount of franchise disclosure documents as part of reviews for clients, as well as I do consult with a fair number of people about uh, start converting their business into a franchise uh, and advising people at various stages of franchises when they're ready to sell or exit the franchise or whether they're attempting to buy or anything along those lines. So a lot of the advice I'm providing today uh, or insight is really just born out of the real life experiences I've seen my clients go through. Um, and, and I want to remember, yeah, there you go. Craft advice. I had to remember to work that in, but, um, the, I wanted to start with, first of all, there, there's a lot of negative press on franchises and it's very worth it. Uh, there's plenty of bad things about them, but there are, there are legitimately good franchises. Uh, and I believe we've talked where we touched on briefly Chick-fil-A, um, I would argue that uh, there for a period of time, I haven't kept up with them, but it was more profitable to buy your kid a subway immediately following high school than it was to send them to college. Uh, yeah. uh, but all of that to say, like, there are legitimately good franchises that deliver the type of value that... Um, is sold to everybody who buys a franchise. So whether you were buying a Subway or buying uh, XYZ Taekwondo franchise, um, the sales pitch is always the same, which is, hey, we are delivering you a business in a box, essentially. You, you need not have any prior experience or knowledge or ability. What we're delivering to you is something that um, will immediately essentially start producing money and revenue. We've got an established brand. We've got um, established methods for doing this well. Uh, and we would like to tell you that they are proven and that they are duplicatable and you can do it too. And to the extent that we're talking about a McDonald's or a Subway or a Chick-fil-A, that's mostly true. Uh, you can go to a McDonald's in literally every country in the world, I think, and get a pretty consistent result may not always be consistently good, but you're going to get a consistent result. Um, and, but that's just not true across the board. So uh, point one, there are good franchises out there. So don't be afraid of all of them. Point two, understand that it is a relatively involved process. And there are a lot of regulatory hurdles associated with uh, starting and operating a franchise as the franchise or so, uh, Again, this, we're not selling the idea of starting a franchise or franchising your business, but there, typically when one starts a franchise, you could be looking at spending somewhere in the neighborhood of 
twenty to fifty thousand dollars in legal fees, CPA fees, uh, all sorts of different things associated with just getting the business situated and structured in such a way that you're ready to even go out and pitch your business idea to your first franchisee. Um, and the reason for that is franchises are regulated uh, by the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, um, as well as in certain states. Florida is not a state that regulates franchises directly anymore, um, but there are states that do. Um, and so you have to produce audited financials and all of these other things. So starting a franchise is not as easy as just, hey, I want to start a franchise. There's a lot more involved. Uh, most franchise disclosure documents are hundreds of pages long, not 10 pages long. Um, and all of that needs to be reviewed by an attorney, uh, blessed by accountants, all of those things before you can even solicit your very first franchisee. So uh, know that whoever is selling you your franchise, they've had to, if they've done it right, they've had to do a lot of work to get to that point. I, I would say that probably doesn't, I mean, the next step, even if you went through all that work to set up a franchise, you then have to make sure it's a franchise you want to run. Even Subway is a great example. Everyone's so excited to own Subway. Then they found out our head spokesperson is maybe a little risque. Literally like the best franchise in America for like, I don't know, seven years, six years in a row or something crazy. And yeah, then, uh, crushed. And then we'll hire someone with a little, uh, yeah. Little pedo, a, uh, pedo yeah, little, little bit of craziness with your person. Then you got to go through and eat fresh, refresh, and try to convince people to come back in and eat the same thing, just with a different sauce on it. So there are things in my mind that still make these risky. You got to know if it's a gym. Okay, well, who runs the gym? Does it have a good brand for it? But I guess, do you, in this, I guess, as you advise clients, is there specific franchise, either sectors or businesses that maybe you see clients gravitate more towards? Or is it just kind of a free-for-all with how they approach getting into this? You mean from the franchisor perspective or the franchisee perspective? Franchisee. So if maybe someone wants to, hey, I want to I want to invest my money. I want to start a business. I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go the franchisee route and get something. How are they typically approaching what they're buying or investing in? Because it is an investment. Yeah. yeah, of course. And this gets into kind of the bulk of what we we're going to talk about today, I think, which is the dangers of franchises or the, or the, the things that the questions you need to be asking, right? So um, to answer your question directly, the most popular uh, historically, I feel franchise model out there is the restaurant model of uh, food, right? So your McDonald's, your Subway's, your Chick-fil-A's, your Zaxby's, PDQ, et PDQ is up and coming, I feel. Um, but all of that to say the food industry has kind of teed it up for a lot of other industries. So now you're starting to see it. Uh, I've been seeing a lot of martial arts franchises. Um, I've seen uh, some med spa franchises. I've seen uh, just varying industries starting to adopt this franchise model. I think um, on the grounds, eh, trampoline parks, um, at, at various attractions, uh, escape games, escape room. uh, yeah, 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 those, escape those rooms. Um, remember for a while there when, uh, Froyo's everywhere, 
Yep, Froyo. Uh, there are a million Froyos. So, yeah, it, it, I think the food industry set it up for all these other industries. And, um, and again, there are good ones. But the, the, the thing that I see most frequently when people walk in and the thing I hear most frequently when people walk in is, hey, I want to get into this franchise. I'm getting in on the ground floor. There's only like three of them and they're going to open 25 of them in the next 12 months. And if I get in now, I can buy up an entire territory and I can do all this other stuff and it's going to be great. So I, I hear that story very frequently. And, and the advice I'll give now is the same advice I give every single time, which is the beauty, the, the beauty of a franchise should be that it is duplicatable, replicatable and, and systems based, and you know, it's going to work. Uh, there might be some derivative things based on the market you're in, but generally speaking, there's only so many ways to make a sandwich, right? There's only so many ways to make a burger. Um, so that's very replicatable. Um, when you start getting into a uh, martial arts gym, for example, uh, you can't bring the exact same instructor to all 30 gyms. You, you have different instructors, you have different types of clientele, you have um, all sorts of variables. So the first thing I always tell people is, hey, based on these existing businesses that you're reading their financials and everything else, who's running them? Can we pin their success on anything else other than the quote unquote system that they've developed, right? Because um, as we already indicated, even Subway on some level or another was remarkably successful because of their ad campaign that was pinned to a very specific person. I think you could even make the same argument that um, Papa John's was in the same boat uh, for a really long time. Um, so it, I, I say, hey, look, what are we really buying? Yeah, the system and everything else is it can be valuable. But at the end of the day, why is it successful? And, and most of the time in these really early franchises, it's because the person that's behind it is pushing it. Uh, and and they have in, they have fierce loyalty from their existing customers because they're loyal to that person, and and so then that leads to well, what's going to drive brand loyalty in St. Augustine, Florida, if no one knows who this person is, and and they don't have a multi million dollar ad campaign, and they don't have uh, all of these different things. What's going to drive your success here? other than teaching you how to sell the product or service or whatever it is. And, and so that's always step one. And unfortunately that doesn't convince a lot of people not to invest in a franchise. Um, but then we kind of progress to step two, which is how much is this actually going to cost you and what are you getting in return? So with most franchises, there's the franchise fee, which, um, admittedly I've seen coming down, but they're just for the most part hiding it in something else. So even if your franchise freeze, say only $20,000, um, in the case of one of these med spa franchises, 
guess where you have to buy all of your med spa equipment from? The franchisor. Who's making the margin on that? The franchisor. Um, who who do you have to buy uh, all of your interior design features from? The franchisor. Who's making the money? They are. So your your twenty thousand dollar franchise fee not, may not feel very big, but by the time you invest in the build out, your lease, your everything else, you're in it over a quarter million dollars. And and what do you really have? Um, yeah. So that's the second thing we focus on. And then the third thing is for the most part, I try to get people to address their own weaknesses, right? Um, a lot of times people look at franchises as uh, a way out of their job, a way out of their daily grind. They view it as a way to kind of live the entrepreneur lifestyle, a way to, um, maybe have some passive income. Yeah. Uh, they, it's, they can, it's, like, it's like a halfway, like I'm going to dip my toe in being an entrepreneur, but I don't want to really commit to being a, a full entrepreneur. I'm not an starting ideas a business. Guy. Yeah. I'm not an ideas guy. Correct. Give me some direction here. Give me some signage. It's like a cheat code. Yeah. <laughs> is, is what I want to start at level four. Exactly. It's billed as a cheat code, right? Yeah. And so like, it, they come into it and they think, oh, I'm not going to have to. It, it's passive income. It's easy. It, yeah. I, I just do my thing. Yep. And and the reality is that that's just not the case. I mean, it doesn't matter what business you're operating, whether it's a law firm, uh, a fitness gym, a distillery. If you're the owner in the early days, you have to be there and you have to be constantly monitoring it because it won't be successful otherwise. Um, and sort of demystifying that. So again, I, I try and get people to kind of go real internal for a minute and, and recognize their own weaknesses because, um, it, it really comes down to, does this franchise, whatever it is, match up to the person that's trying to buy it. Right. So going back to, there are good franchises. So if, if you're not an ideas guy, but you're a really good operator, um, you might be able to be really successful in a franchise scenario. I, I think of a couple of clients that I have that are in the smoothie space and very he does organized, really, really well. Um, mm -hmm. but he is in his stores seven days a week. Um, yeah. it's definitely yeah. not passive income for him. Um, and, and so it, it's just about kind of forcing people to address their own weaknesses, forcing them to deal with what, uh, what they're really looking for out of this opportunity. And I will freely admit to you guys that even if I go through that entire process with people, most of them still buy the franchise. Yeah, I'm different. Yellow. Right? Yeah. I'm different. Yellow. Like, you no, know, I, I understand those, you know, those concerns, but that, you know, that's not me. That's somebody else. That's not me. Correct. I, I can do um, this. But hold on. I hey. wanted to touch on this because we brought up Chick-fil-A a couple times. I hate to burst <laughs> everybody's bubble out there. It's not a real franchise. That is correct. You, you basically, it's it's more akin to like a executive level management training program. And you're selected through this, basically a lottery. I mean, it's uh, so I, the reason why I know that is because I put a lot of effort into looking into this some years back. And I was like, Oh, this would, 
this is like the rest of these uh, intelligent individuals who want to just buy a turnkey business that's nice and easy. Oh, I could do this. So I start going down the rabbit hole of looking into it. And basically, you fill out the application. They have to audit your financial. Like basically, they have to send copies of your financials for like the last, I want to say it's three or five years. You have to have a certain level of net worth. You have to have a certain number of personal, business, um, and I believe religious or community uh, references that are different people. You have to, you know, be involved with your church and separate charities and certain like a certain amount. I mean, there's an incredible level of due diligence that they go that goes into. And you also you don't get to just say like, oh, I want to open up a Chick-fil-A. I'm going to go through this rigorous process, get selected. And oh, first in Maine, I'm going to put a bill, you know, I want to put a Chick-fil-A there. You get to pick three markets and you will, you know, if you're selected, you'll get one of your top three, but they're deciding where that market is, what, you know, what the exact location is. They do every single thing. You are basically involved with none of that. But at the same time, you know, you get to run the most expensive, you know, the most profitable store in the country right now. Um, Now, the other drawback is that you don't actually own it, so you can't pass it on to children or family members or your wife. You don't have the ability to, um, what is it? You So you can't open multiples either. You can only have one at a time. And you have to, you have to work it. Mm-hmm. So you can't there. just hire, you can't just hire a manager to run this Chick-fil-A for you. Every single Chick-fil-A is run by one person who owns one store who is there basically five, six days a week and is very involved in the community and they require you to be involved in, you know, very involved in that local church or that area that they select and charities in that local area. I mean, it's a, it's a really, uh, it's not well, a I regular think, franchise. I think but that's this also is how where, they protect brand. I think this is where you get to. So if you're looking at this from the franchisee perspective, you've got to kind of figure out, is there a business you can get in? Like if you're a gym nut and you buy a gym, that may go over well, provided you know how to run a business and your brains, yeah. you know, working right. But I think part of this is you need to know what the incentives are of the franchisor. So I'm going to use McDonald's as an example. Most people that buy McDonald's stock think they make money when there's burgers and shakes going through. But McDonald's is more of a real estate firm that if you're going to get the franchise, they're going to buy the land, they're going to own the building, and they're basically going to lease it to the franchisor. So or the franchisee, excuse me. So that individual will make a lot of in-store money, but... The other aspect, most franchise operations will have average store, whatever. This store is expected to make, or an average store will make three to $500,000 in you know a given year. So most of them have boiled down the math, or at least they should have, down to a point where it's almost like clockwork. If I open a new store, it'll make a million dollars a year. After the expenses, the owner will make two fifty. Obviously, you have to run it. You have to clean it. You have to... <laughs> keep up with it if you're the franchisee. But Rich, if you've worked with maybe clients on the franchisor side, so I have a business, it's profitable, it's doing well. Are there key performance indicators or things that are checkboxes of we can franchise this or maybe you need to do something else, license the the idea to someone else? Yeah, so one key component or perhaps the most important component of a franchise is control. So the franchise model emphasizes the franchisor's ability to 
maintain a high level of control over their product and their store and create, in some cases, exponential growth in a very short period of time using other people's money. Uh, so it, it's the replacement to internal growth, right? So if, I, if I'm Rich Brooks's Shake Shack and I want to open 100 Rich Brooks's Shake Shacks, I have options. I can do it myself and own all of them. I can uh, license the idea. In other words, I just license the name, the recipes, et cetera. But ultimately, if I do that, I have absolutely no control. Like I could license it to Sean and he could make shakes that taste terrible. Uh, and ultimately, I can't, <laughs> I can't do any, or maybe they're so much better than mine that he puts me out of business. Exactly. But all of that to say, I have absolutely no control over what he does after I, he signs that licensing agreement until his license expires. The third option that is often very attractive to the franchisor is a franchise. And the reason is, I can, it, let's just use the same example. If, if Sean's a franchisee and he puts something on the menu that I don't like, I could potentially take his franchise from him for no compensation whatsoever. I could just say, hey, you've breached your franchise agreement and uh, take a hike. This is mine now. Um, How challenging is it for a company to do that? I mean, is it, is it, is it difficult? I mean, are, 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 I guess I'm asking, so the, is, are the franchise contracts generally pretty heavily skewed to the uh, franchisor? Yeah, the short answer is yes. The franchisor yeah. almost always holds a hundred percent of the cards. And, and in addition, so I'm going to burst everybody's bubble for a second. Um, Damn it. In civil litigation <laughs> in the United States, the person with the most money usually wins. Uh, and, and when I say wins, I'm talking about the sort of war of attrition uh, that occurs in the world of civil litigation. Attorneys are expensive. Um, I bill $350 an hour, and I know I'm not the most expensive. Uh, I, know, I have referred clients to specialized civil litigation firms that charge upwards of $750 an hour. Um, and so when you're talking about litigation and you're a, let's just say you're a single franchisee uh, of a really successful franchise, well, how much of your net worth are you willing to throw behind a lawsuit that you're fighting against a franchisor that's got maybe tens of millions of dollars uh, and staff attorneys that will just basically be working for free? So. Uh, and and some of the attorneys out there would say, well, there's the the contingency fee litigation route and there's other things, but it, it takes a very specific special type of case to even consider a contingency business litigation. Um, and they just don't pop up very often. And there's only so many firms that'll do it. So you're stuck with yeah. the Morgan and Morgans and the Fair and Ferris and the really, really large firms that'll even do that sort of thing. So... At the end of the day, franchisors win, quote unquote, on technicality, mostly because they can just outspend uh, their franchisees in the event of a dispute. And to be truthfully honest, I mean, these agreements are written pretty tightly. So yeah. they're, not, they're not designed to be unenforceable. They're designed to be enforceable. Yep. And, and based on the very nature of the way franchises work, you have full disclosure of what you're signing up for before you even sign up. 
So it, you know exactly how you're what the rules are off yeah. uh, before you are. Um, and, and so to answer your question directly, highly skewed in favor of franchisor, but going back to where I was going, the best part about being a franchisor in this, in this perspective is you have complete and total control over your brand, over the quality of your product, over, yep. uh, over everything in your business and you can build it with other people's money. So it's, it's kind of a great thing from a franchise or perspective, assuming you can be successful because think about it. If there's venture capital, right. And we, the three of us probably have some experience in, in people investing in businesses and things along those lines. Um, and having investors, uh, no offense to the investors can be annoying. Um, they, they can be needy. They, they like to know what's going on. Uh, they like to see a return on their money. Um, and that's no different for privately held companies than it is for publicly traded companies. In fact, I would say it's almost worse if you're a privately held company, um, because there's no liquidity, right? So there's even more emphasis on return me money or, uh, or I just franchise where I really don't even have to care about returning investor money. I just basically force other people to pay for it. Um, and if they don't do what I say, I can take it from them. So, um, so because most franchise agreements, the franchisor is even given the opportunity to write in the commercial lease to assume the lease from the original tenant. Uh, so literally in certain circumstances, these franchisors can just march right in and take over, uh, one of their franchisee entities turn it into something really profitable and have entered a market without actually having to expend a lot of money, but the, there is a weakness. So let's, let's, let's come back to earth for a minute. Um, if you're the type of person that's going to one of these franchise shows, or you're going, if you're, you're hearing from a, a person that is a franchise broker or one of these other things, one of the things you need to be paying attention to is how many franchise locations do these, does this, franchise or have and what kind of infrastructure do they have? Um, because I can promise you this at McDonald's and Chick-fil-A huge amounts of infrastructure. You have regional people, you have local people, you have direct points of contact. If, if you need somebody to come in and train your people, there will be somebody there the next day. They have immense amounts of infrastructure that they are providing to you. Um, John Smith's Shake Shack, may have nobody that they may literally be the franchise or uh, a couple of other people that are just bouncing around the country doing these training events or not doing them at all. So it, the, especially the new franchises. Think Sweet so, Frog has a regional trainer. <laughs> I don't know. I doubt I don't it. Know. Uh, they, they I don't know. Like, this is how you weigh, this is how you weigh Froyo. <laughs> This is how the froyo swirls in the cup. You know, you got to turn and rotate. Teach you how to pour yeah. the sprinkles. There you go. Uh, or just, I mean, even think tech support, right? Because yeah. guess yeah. what? You're forced to buy all of your tech from the franchisor. So they're your tech support. Um, you don't have a local guy down the street that you can go knock on his door when your phone system doesn't work. You're forced to deal with the franchisor's selected company. So when you're dealing with 
a upstart franchise doesn't mean it's bad, but understand that you're not going to get the same level of support as you might get at Chick-fil-A. I mean, yeah. it, it, where it, at Chick-fil-A, you're effectively, uh, you're an operator. Uh, you're, they're not expecting much from you. They want you to, to go do a good job operating and they'll do the rest. Um, that's just not the case in other circumstances. So the advice I give to new franchisors, so somebody walks in and they want to uh, franchise their restaurant, for example, which is very popular because, hey, I've got this incredibly successful restaurant in St. Augustine. I want to put it in Miami or I want to put it everywhere. The, the, I ask them. Nobody's, your... nobody's grits are better than my mammy's grits. Correct. Uh, That's it. What is your, what's your quality control plan? Like, you're using a franchise model so that you can provide control. But if you go from one store to 30 stores in a year, how are you going to be able to scale and put people in these stores to make sure that the quality is there? The, the uniforms are there. The people they're hiring are there. The, the meals are being prepared the way you want. Like it, that takes money too. So it's not just all sunshine and rainbows. Oh, I'm going to build my business with other people's money. You just have to scale yep. differently and you have to scale from a management perspective and from an internal regulation perspective, not from a, how do I operate a bunch of stores and how do I invest in a bunch of stores? So it's not a full scale offloading of responsibility is kind of the underlying point there. Yeah, I would, and I want to bring up a good case example was we, we were joking about this before we started recording, but all of us in our younger years would, absorb as much Quiznos as we possibly could. That honey mustard chicken with bacon. Oh, so, good. Just, so good. And of course it came with the giant tubs of sauce, the size of your so stomach much. that you could just mm -hmm. you know, ladle as much as you want. Great portions. I love, I miss Quiznos. Where are well, they? Quit, I do. I mean, you know, the carbonara sandwich, like, come on. Anyways, Quiznos. Subway's still around. I believe, I, I'm trying to find the resource where I found this. I'm pretty sure Quiznos has the most bankruptcies of any franchise just because they were everywhere so quickly. Yeah. And if you think about this, so if you are the franchisor, they're just trying to get stores out because the more stores they get, the more money. And if you're a franchisee, you're like, oh, this name everyone hears. So the problem is you oversaturate a marketplace with there's a Quiznos in every corner. So as good as we all know a toasted sandwich tasted and, and then they tried to come back with a vengeance with their like i don't know if you've seen their recent commercials but they're like looks like someone on lsd just with a crayon <laughs> i'll send you one rich just so you can watch the commercial <laughs> it's yeah, terrifying. The, last, the last quiznos i knew of existing was up by the jacksonville court or uh City Jackson Hall. Hall. Yeah, they, they uh, were able to walk, you know, to their bankruptcy hearing. So they survived exactly. it is what it was. But Probably. you have to think about this from the investor standpoint is if you're go if you're going to invest in a franchise, I want to put cash into one of these. Is there enough support at the home office level to actually keep you alive? You're not going to go into one of these and make $10 million because Sean's point on Chick-fil-A, some of these won't let you sell them. And now on the flip Correct. side, if you have a business that's successful, can you replicate it? You can't clone yourself yet. Maybe in the metaverse, I was thinking about this earlier, we could franchise everything. It's completely everything. replicable. Absolutely. I would also say, and, and I saw this, uh, maybe my first iteration into the industry, a client of ours, he decided he wanted to buy into a McDonald's franchise. 
and you realize the profit on one McDonald's franchise was not going to satisfy the kind of lifestyle he wanted. So he set up and eventually owned about 15 all along one stretch of 95. So if you're driving on 95, there's about a 25 mile stretch where this guy owns every single McDonald's. Doesn't matter if you skip an exit, you go to the next one, he's got you. You go to the next exit, he's still got you. So using that in the infrastructure of McDonald's, you know, someone that's entrepreneurial can scale their, their net worth, their earnings, they can compound what they're doing, but you can't just buy one Planet Fitness and be like, I'm going to be rolling in dough and have FU rolling money. Rolling in $10 bills, baby. <laughs> I'm going to be rolling in $10 bills. And that's the perfect oh, example, right? So, I mean, it, I've never seen a franchise model. doesn't mean it doesn't exist, and maybe somebody will send me an email after this. Um, I've never seen a franchise model where owning one throws off enough income to effectively make you to, – to put you in a position where – that's the only thing you need to do. Uh, anybody that I've ever met or known that makes money in the franchise world owns multiples, and they they lock up a region, they lock up uh, they lock up an area or a corridor or something, and and they're they're diversifying they're they're diversifying in the sense that if one store is not particularly doing well, they've got. 15 other stores to kind of back that up. And if they're in a close enough area, you can always pull resources from one to the other, because guess what? Your franchisor, especially in a time of supply shortages, may not always have access to the things you need. You may not have boxes. You may not have straws. You may not have whatever. So if you've got 10 stores and one store is out of straws, well, guess what? You can take straws from one store and move it to the other. So there might be some weird accounting things that need to take place, but at the end of the day, you, you, you're more flexible. So all of that to say, Jack, you're right on it. If you're, a, if you're the franchisee or you're planning to be a franchisee, do look close at the support that you're going to get and ask a lot of questions about the support you're going to get, because ultimately that should be the highest value proposition that you receive. I mean, what you, if you're buying a franchise, at least one of the reasons why you're doing so is you don't want to hire an internal marketing person. You don't want to hire uh, an accountant uh, or a bookkeeper or uh, somebody to basically help you set up all of your accounting software and do all those things and manage your point of sale. You don't want to hire a tech support guy. You really don't even want to hire upper management. You, you, want, you want guidance. You want all of those things get yourself aligned with a franchisor that actually provides you all of those things, as opposed to just providing you a bunch of equipment, uh, signage, furniture, et cetera, makes you sign a 10-year personally guaranteed lease. And yeah, they have the ability to take that lease away from you. But if they go out of business and thus so do you, who still personally guaranteed that 10-year lease? You did. You think your landlord cares? that your franchisor went out of business? Not at all. They want their money, they want their rent, and at the end of the day, um, you're on the hook. to get it one way or another. So it, these are all the reasons why you need to make sure when you're conducting your due diligence on these franchises, you gotta look really closely at the support. And, and another bit of advice that I tell people um, mostly because I don't love to always be the bearer of bad news is, uh, I tell them go watch like three seasons of shark tank 
Yeah. Like literally just We're sit on your couch. This. Yeah, get no and watch get the three hell out seasons. Of exactly. And, You're dead to and, me. To jump <laughs> in on that, I think the best thing that they say in that show is, or at least, right, it's Mr. Wonderful, the bald guy always says, is like, yeah. is this like something that can be protected? Like, is there anything that's unique and different? Correct. It's like people want to franchise things that somebody else can go and rip off and replicate right next door and there's nothing special to it. I mean, it's, is there a moat? Is there some kind of protection? Or are you buying into a franchise that has such a well-established brand that it has an actual following. I mean, just like we were talking about Chick-fil-A versus a Taekwondo franchise, right? Or, or a McDonald's or whatever it is. The level of support is there, but it's also how much are you willing to invest into this franchise, right? You can find some people, and that's where I feel like a lot of people get ripped off is they get sold this, oh, it's only 20 grand or 40 grand or 50 grand or 100 grand or whatever it is. And it's relatively, you know, if you can sell them on the dream of entrepreneurialism, freedom, financial independence, all this stuff. It's like, oh, all I have to do is 50 grand or 75 grand. And I, I work there for a while. And then eventually I hire somebody and it runs itself. And then I'm rich and I can go sail off and do whatever. Those are most of those are most likely the ones that go under and I feel like fail because they are the least protected, the least well-known, the smallest. They have no support, virtually, you know, virtually no support. They're, they're, they're run by very, you know, the people at the top are very, uh, I don't know, not shaky, but flimsy, I guess, is the, the, the word that I would, you know, they're, they're not, it's not like you have a board of directors that's overseeing. There's no quality control from a management perspective to the product level. Uh, but you probably know, not you, publicly traded or yeah, exactly. in any way uh, regulated by anyone other than themselves. But yeah. if you're buying into a Starbucks or a McDonald's, right, you're, you're, you're a franchise fee and what you pay up front is a lot, right? You're spent. You there's a big investment into that, but you're buying into and a brand that has infrastructure, you know, infrastructure, a global presence. You're not, you know, it's it does its. I mean, it's got its own marketing, but I mean, it's the whole. It's a completely different animal. So, Rich, I, I want to throw one more at you from the business owner standpoint. So, if I have a successful business and I'm doing well, how do you think the fork in the road? I guess makes the turn to franchise or the easiest is it someone that has oh I have a smoothie shop and you know a frozen yogurt shop in St Augustine and I'm killing it or is it someone that said hey you know I've taken this one restaurant got a second a third a fourth a fifth location now we kind of have a restaurant group we have the infrastructure layer and we're looking for that next layer of growth like where up the growth from like sole proprietor one man band up to now we have some infrastructure. Where do you start to see this become, hey, this is a viable offshoot we should consider? Yeah, of course. I mean, you just gave the prototypical example, right? So um, I don't know this to be 100% true, but uh, a friend of mine once told me that Louisville, Kentucky is one of the proving grounds for people that want to start franchises. Something about that marketplace um, uh, yeah, Tampa is probably another one. There's probably Tampa's multiple. One the, Tampa's one of the largest uh, franchisee markets, uh, testing markets in the country. And, and so to, to your point, Jack, the, the if you're a business owner and you're even remotely thinking that franchising could be in your future, you're going to have to have more than one location. Um, and you're going to have to have more than one lo more than one location in alternative marketplaces. Prove so you whether can that's do it, right? Correct. So, and, 
and this goes beyond like protecting your intellectual property and trademarking and all of that fun stuff, which is a whole episode in and of itself. But like you have to prove that whatever it is you've got is portable. And the only way you can do that is to put it in at least one or two other markets other than your home market, right? Because Louisville or Tampa or Nashville or any other market may not give a shit what grandma's grits taste like because they've got other grandma's grits that they like. But Mammals. if, it, if it's, Tampa it's, it's really does. Mammy's grits, all right? It's Mammy's, Mammy's grits, fair enough. Uh, <laughs> if, if, if They may so not much. like Mammy's grits, but if they do really like what Mammy's grits taste like and they become addicted to Mammy's grits because you're putting who knows what in it, uh, then, hey, you've got something sticky. You've got something that, um, for Maybe lack of a way of saying it, exactly. You've got something that people will will f- seek out. I mean, I, I, I think about uh, when I was a kid. So, for example, you just you go back to Chick-fil-A or even Krispy Kreme. So, like, yeah. when I was a kid growing up in Pittsburgh, we didn't have Chick-fil-A. The only place that we had Chick-fil-A was when we went on vacation to the South. But you best believe the day that a Chick-fil-A opened, even within driving distance of my house, me and all my friends were there the day it opened because it had become a myth. It had been a legend. Like you'd go on vacation to the beach and you'd get Chick-fil-A and it was the best Chick-fil-A sandwich you ever had or chicken sandwich you ever had. I camped outside of a (laughs) Chick-fil-A in Jacksonville. Don't tell anybody else for, for literally 24 hours to be one of the first 100, and they gave you 100 free meals. So yep. I feel it. We we had – this is when I was in college. Sorry for the tangent. Pretty incredible. We had people in the dorms bring a truck full of furniture. We had a couch, a tent, and we slept you in the well parking prepared. lot. Oh, we were – I was getting – we had like five of us. We were like, this is 500 free meals. This is bartering chips back in the dorms. Oh, well mm-hmm. worth it. So – Continue with your story. Oh, I'm a man of means now. But, but that's, I have money. I have money. It's meal money, but it's money. Barter hey, it's a, food is money in college, ultimately. Anything that's not cafeteria food is money in college. If they make um, a Chick-fil-A coin, Sean, I think all your Bitcoin <laughs> worries are gone. No, I'm in. I'm in. I'm all uh, in. I feel, I feel like that would be ultimately successful. But all of that to say... Um, you heard it here first, Chick-fil-A, so exactly. you expect yeah, something welcome. in return. Um, but it's but all of that to say it you've gotta have that special something, you've gotta have that stickiness, you've gotta have uh that proven ability that people will go out of their way to find what you're selling. And and in food it's incredibly hard, right? Like it it's such a saturated market. Um, and I tell people that are restaurateurs, it, what are you doing? Like absent having an incredibly large marketing budget or a f- celebrity endorser or something, what makes you different? And the short answer is not much. I mean, it, it, I tell all of my people, the book I recommend is, hey, go read Zero to One by Peter Thiel. Yep. It's a relatively short read. It's a quick and uh, you, you'll breeze through it as everybody should, but it, what you're doing is not necessarily going to provide you any meaningful advantage over anybody else um, in that sphere. So it, it becomes really tough. 
But to answer your question directly, Jack, the short answer is create something protectable to the extent you can, and then make sure that it's sticky, make sure that it, uh, it works in other markets. In other words, it can even be regional markets. It doesn't have to be all over the United States. If you're, if you're in the Southeast, you might want to try Louisville and Tampa and Atlanta. And if you do really well there, then, Hey, let's roll. Um, but the so to that expect- point, I mean, Jacksonville is such a big market. I mean, you could have a franchise or a business to hear out at the beach and then another one on the other side of town in like Orange Park or, you know, just in depending on where you live, obviously, I mean, you can have areas that are completely different demographic types. And uh, so it doesn't, like you said, it doesn't have to be across multiple states. It doesn't have to be across multiple cities. It can be within if you, if you live in a certain type of area, large enough area, it can just be within different parts of town with different demographics. hundred percent. But yeah. at the end of the day, you can't do it with one location. That's yeah. the moral of the story is. You can't do it with one location. You can't, uh, even more so, you can't do it relying on online sales. Um, so if you're, then you kind of divvy into or like might find yourself in an MLM scenario, which you really don't want to be in. It is a completely different conversation. But it, you, you have to have proven yourself in multiple locations. You have to have some, an ideal world, you have to have something protectable. You have to have that hook, whatever it is. If it's a really good, meal, then that meal better be really, really good. If it's a really good, um, if it's a really good piece of technology or uh, a med tech item, then it better be patentable and you better be able to protect it. If it's, uh, anything that you can build walls around, build a moat around and, and protect for any length of time that, which, Newsflash, patents are only good for 20 years. So um, even patents will eventually expire. So these things have to be, once you're the franchisor and you create this really cool thing and you've built a moat around it, you've done all the things, you've proved yourself in other markets, guess what? You have to be reinventing yourself too. If you're just playing the same fiddle over and over again or going back to the same well, you're putting yourself in the same position as a lot of these other previously really successful franchises or franchises subway being an example where one bad thing eventually takes you down. And if you're not reinventing yourself in some way and pushing that down to your franchisees, you're in danger of eventually becoming irrelevant. Uh, even if you have all of the infrastructure, even if you have uh, all of the things that it takes, because Look, to build the next McDonald's or to build the next Chick-fil-A, I would argue, and somebody is free to argue against this with me, is bordering on impossible. Yeah. It, it, it's just not going to happen. Uh, and if you think you can do it, I'll be the first to tell you you can't. So um, you better have a really good idea. But that, you hopefully got, that answers your question. You guys heard it here. You got to have that McRib magic that comes in <laughs> and reinvigorates your franchise. But... I think I think what we're learning here is if you're gonna if you're gonna go down the franchise or route, if you got a business, you want to do this, you've got to make sure you've replicated it to prove you could franchise it. You gotta have the support you offer to people you're gonna sell this to. You can't just sell this, get your franchise fee and go sail off on your yacht. I mean you could, but offer value, right? You gotta be able to offer value. Yep. And then on the franchisee side, you need to make sure you're buying into something that has the support 
there's probably a predefined or at least a band of how much money you're going to make on this. I think that's one reason why you got to look to figure out what kind of lifestyle do you want to live? If you're going to be, you know, in the uppity ups in the Hamptons, you know, owning a Chick-fil-A franchise may be profitable, but it's not going to get you a few money, do it. you know? Ain't going to do it. You got to work on that stuff. So I think the, the last thing I wanted to get Rich's idea on is I think this is where the tech world is starting to attack this space with open arms. So there's actually a platform now that's trying to offer to investors fractional franchise right. investing. So rather than you saying, oh, I want to buy a plate against sports or I want to buy, you know, a McDonald's, you can say, I want to invest 200 grand into franchises and they'll allow you to kind of allocate portionally into like a basket of franchises. I mean, you could kind of do this today. You could buy Marriott, it's a franchise company. Remax, it's a franchise company. McDonald's is a franchise company. Snap-on is a franchise company. There's a lot of publicly traded companies that are franchises, but you're starting to see a way to give investors access into this market. I don't know if that solves the business owner side, because I think you really have to have a good entrepreneur to do it. But what are your thoughts on that, uh, you know, kind of investing almost like a basket approach? Into the caveat to add on that, the, those types of franchises that you're buying through this platform are generally a lot more regional or smaller scale. So the risk is higher, but the return is a lot higher than, say, like, you know, those examples you're mentioning, McDonald's and Marriott. And those are obviously very saturated, very well-established brands. And this is this is something a lot more unique and, uh, again, just kind of higher risk, higher reward kind of scenario. So, so to answer the question, I think that as with anything, this is truly an opportunity for franchisors um, it, it, to revision what it looks like to have a franchisee. Um, and I don't know if anybody's done this. I've not kept up on it the way you guys probably have because you guys are in the security space and what's hip, but if a franchisor, for example, were to uh, find a way in, in the way that some uh, art creators and um, and DeFi companies have used crypto to to kind of de facto raise money to expand their brands, it, yeah. these these sort of franchise securities could be a really interesting way for franchisors to. Um, expand in a way that is different and uh, at least moderately new compared to their standard way, which was like, hey, we just need to get 100 people to open franchises and collect a franchise fee, and then we'll build our infrastructure, and then we'll do this and that. that by securitizing them, if you can offer the market enough of a return, I think you'll get enough people that maybe are willing to kind of take the risk on it. Um and, and really give you access to capital that you would have had to have sold maybe way more individual franchises to than you would have before. So I think it could be a vehicle. And again, maybe somebody's already doing this and if they are good on them to for franchisors to build up corporate portfolio stores that they yep. can then turn around and spin out to franchisees at a much higher rate because it's an existing successful store. So, um, it's pooled it, risk it, at the end of the day. You're you're taking correct, all yep. that risk off of. I mean, you think about it too. If I was going to open a Chick Fil A, I want the busiest location possible. But if I'm only offered this one store, and that's you know what you get, you're stuck with that. 
So I tell people all the time when they want to start a business, when they want to invest in a business. I mean, we talked about this multiple times on the podcast with people about investing in rentals. It's like you need to figure out what the return on the money you're putting in is going to be before you just blindly put it in. Like, yeah, it's cool to drive down the road and go, that's a that's my house. I own that. But if your return is nothing or negative or you know, barely over what you get in a bond, you need to kind of reevaluate this. So I, I, I agree. If you're looking at this in a way and you can de-risk some of the default, you can de-risk some of this Jared from Subway issues. If you can de-risk some of the, maybe the industry turning away from you. You know, if nobody wants to do karate anymore because they want to do Cobra Kai, got to know how to pivot. 100%. And, and one last thing that I'll touch on that I touch on with a lot of my folks that come in wanting to be franchisors is that there is an alternative and it's, it's licensing. Um, now there's a lot of risk involved with licensing, but there can be an immense amount of success. So uh, a perfect example of this would be CrossFit. Um, people either love or hate CrossFit, but ultimately CrossFit is a licensing opportunity uh, that Greg Glassman, who was the original founder of CrossFit, turned into one of the more successful merchandising licensing plays of the modern era or maybe of all time. Um, so by taking the most laissez-faire free market economy uh, approach to gyms that has ever existed, which is why there's such diversity amongst CrossFit gyms. Like you, if, if, if I once was into CrossFit quite regularly before I had children and I went to a great box here in town, um, but we would drop in places all over the world. My wife and I would go on a cruise and we did a drop in once in Mexico. Um, and every CrossFit gym it has a completely different personality and, and he wanted it that way. And, uh, it could have gone incredibly bad, but it turns out that it went incredibly well. Um, and the really good gyms stuck around and the bad gyms didn't. Yep. And, uh, it's become a, a, an incredibly profitable enterprise. So don't sleep on the idea of a business license especially if uh, what you're doing can <coughs> or is or is centered mostly around this idea of building a brand, building uh, building a lifestyle, building building something that um, people just want to associate themselves with. Specifically, the fitness space makes a lot of sense. So I imagine that in some other spaces that it could also make sense, but uh, it, there are other options. The business license model is a fair amount cheaper to get started. Um, doesn't come with all of the, uh, headaches of regulation and everything else. Um, but can be immensely successful if you a get a little lucky and B, uh, have a reasonable plan for how you're going to roll this thing out. So CrossFit was at least partially really successful because, they focused a lot on the military and law enforcement communities initially, who obviously takes fitness very, very seriously. Um, and most people don't realize, I believe the second uh, authorized CrossFit location was actually in Jacksonville. Uh, so the, Jacksonville holds a really weird place in CrossFit history for that. But um, 
all of that to say there are alternatives out there. Hey, business owner, you want to grow big, but you don't want to franchise or franchising is too crazy. Seek out advice, consider the business licensing route, and uh, it might also work for you. Very good. John, wrap right, us up. I'll... I think you should do some burpees for Jacksonville. End it on that. Get Doing outside so... the car and knock a couple <laughs> sets up. In the rain. It's called dedication, Jack. That's what That's I'm about. Good. Yeah. I'm here for the people. I'm here for the people. All right. Look, but yeah, only yeah, this so we, was uh... a video podcast, that would be so much more interesting. <laughs> Spotify just Spotify just turned on videos for us, so I oh, might perfect. drop this. I might drop this for Sean. <laughs> This, this is what we need to have as our first video. We got some, we got some yawns, Sean. I got those on we camera. We got some yawns. Good. I'm glad. I saw you smirking there. I knew you were, I knew you were taking a yeah. shot. Get outside. 50 burpees. Come on. Do a box jump on the way back to the bar. So, yeah. No, we uh, we got we got Rich here. Rich Brooks, uh, St. Augustine Law Group. We're uh, going through the various franchise models, pros, cons, the good, the bad, the ugly. Um, some alternatives to that, obviously, just talking about licensing. Um, obviously whenever we're going over anything, this is always craft advice. So seek out professional guidance for your own personal situation, but, uh, definitely something where it can make sense for the right person, the right brand, uh, based on everything rich and, uh, and Jack and I were talking about, seems like there's, there's the possibility that some are out there, but the market is very much flooded with a lot of bad franchise options. So buyer beware, do your research. And if you don't feel comfortable doing it on your own, seek out some professional guidance. Actual legal advice. You don't want to do crap legal advice, advice when you want to go down. Not crap. Yeah. yeah. Legal, legal, Anyways. legal crap. All right. And no offense <laughs> to franchise brokers, but they it, it, suck. As as a lawyer, <laughs> uh, I have to say, look, know who, and you guys appreciate this too. Who owes you a duty? Are they yeah. a sales rep, or are they actually looking out for you? There you go. So, in the case of Jack and Sean and or myself, we owe you a duty to not give you bad advice. Hence, we give you craft advice. Um, and uh, because if you don't, you can ultimately sue us. I promise you that whoever is trying to sell you that franchise doesn't owe you that same duty. So it, it is all the more important that you get good advice. And, and hey, you won't hurt my feelings if you come in and have me read your franchise disclosure document and still buy the franchise but at least I will sleep better knowing that you knew what you were getting yourself into. So that's my yeah. two cents for what it's worth. Very good. Right on. Well, all right, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to craft advice, rich shoot out how people can contact you if they actually want to buy or consider a franchise. Yeah. Or get so, legal advice. Uh, or legal, actual yeah. legal advice. If they're like, I'm tired of the <laughs> <Nine> shit, <laughs> I want to. <laughs> yeah. No. Real legal advice, uh, non craft legal advice. Uh, but anyway, um, 904-990-7777, very easy to remember, um, is the office line. Julia is my assistant paralegal extraordinaire. She will get you on my calendar. Um, or uh, I'm very easy to find online. Just Google St. Augustine Law Group. I'll pop right up. I believe my email's there. If it isn't, uh, I'm easy to find on LinkedIn and other places. By all means, get in touch and uh, happy to help you if I can. Very good. Well, cheers. Yeah. Cheers. Cheers, boys. Adios.
Jack and Sean work for Senge Advisory Group, a registered investment advisory firm. All discussions between Jack and Sean or any podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Senge Advisory Group. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Senge Advisory Group may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast.